Anything that helps to progress a project and move it from one stage to the next, we view that as success. But I think success can also be measured in, you know, has this interaction brought about a new way of thinking or helped you develop a new business model or a new approach for your project or your development. Welcome back to another episode of the Innovation Roundtable Insights Podcast. That's Amy Trejo. At our workshop hosted by Bosch in Chicago, Amy and our colleague Leonard discuss the role Silicon Valley and other hot ecosystems play in innovation partnerships. We hope you enjoy this episode. Amy, thanks for joining me in my uh, little studio right here. Um, and maybe we can start the interview with uh, bri you briefly explaining who you are, what company you work for, and what role you have at the moment. Yeah, well, I'm Amy Trejo, and I work with the Procter & Gamble Company. Um, I've been there for almost 20 years now, and I'm currently working in um, our corporate R&D organization in a group that um, does open innovation, or what we call internally connect and develop. Um, and I work with a lot of the um, upstream R&D teams within our broader R&D organization, and I help uh, them, first I try to understand what their innovation needs are, anything from specific technologies or processes or methodologies, or even in some cases establishing um, business models or innovation models, and then help connect them with either groups internally that are doing similar kinds of work or external groups whether those are academic institutions or smaller companies, larger companies, or innovation companies. So it's really playing a connection role both internal to P&G as well as external to P&G. How does the innovation framework look at P&G? Is it a standardized process, staged gates, on, and how does that connect in your daily work? Yeah, I think, I mean, we have a range of different innovation frameworks depending on where within the R&D organization you are, right? So, I mean, we have kind of delivery-focused R&D teams that are more product development that, you know, kind of take some technologies or, um, you know, technical approaches and, and put them into a product and then deliver that product in partnership with marketing to the market. And then we have other organizations that are technically focused and centered around business unit-specific technology needs, and they might develop technologies in, to a certain point in collaboration with the product development teams and then hand them off to them for development to the market. And then we have more upstream uh, R&D organizations that are focused on transformative platform technologies. We call those, and those are our kind of most upstream and more kind of forward-focused organizations that are looking at, um, you know, what are the technologies and, and other kind of external forces of the future that are going to dictate where we need to be, and how do they start to develop technologies or other processes that will eventually feed into products for the future. So there's different levels, and each of those different organizations, I think, have a different innovation structure and framework, right? They all have a certain amount of process, but you can imagine that the closer you are to the market, the more process you have around the way the work is done, right? So. How would you describe the principles, if you, in, in terms of innovation, innovation principles at Procter & Gamble, if you? I think our innovation principles are really largely based in what are the consumer needs and unmet consumer tensions that exist today, or as well is how much we can think about where they will be in the future, right? So, you know, we look at our products and, and see, you know, how are they delivering and what are the needs that they're providing to the consumers today? Um, what are the unmet tensions that they have, even for pro products that are well-established? They may still be having 
you know, uh, some opportunity to deliver better for the consumer or to change based on how she or he is, is changing in the way that they interact with the product, right? Um, I think we always start with thinking about the consumer and also the context of what is the job they're trying to do, right? So when we think about the future of product development, we don't think about how can we make this bottle of Tide better. We think about um, how are consumers in the future going to be doing the job of getting their laundry clean? And that opens up a completely different way of thinking about innovation beyond the product itself and more about the job that needs to be done in the context of the consumer in that job. Will they be sending their laundry out to a service to get it done? And then how does that affect Tide and what should Tide be focusing on to help meet that consumer need? Um, or are they going to be using a machine to do their wash that doesn't use detergent? Is it a waterless washing machine? In which case, how do we think about a formulated detergent in that context, right? So we always think less about the product and more about what's the context in which it's going to be used, either now, today, or in the future. Now you've been talking about you know, finding outside partners and inside partners and, and connecting the right people more, or the right groups of people uh, with each other. But how do you select, especially outside partners, what, what are the criteria for that? Yeah, I think um, the, the criteria, I think initially we start with sort of understanding where in the innovation process the team is, right? And then that helps us to kind of um, look at our portfolio of external partners that we use. We have what we call sort of innovation service providers. And they sort of span the spectrum of innovation all the way from very conceptual or you know, landscaping of you know, what's the state of a certain you know, technology or area, and um, all the way through to you know, who can help us develop new innovative business models. And there's kind of all range of innovation needs across that spectrum, and we have partners that we've vetted over the years through doing small learning experiments or even larger projects with them where we get a database of, of um, you know, data against which we can then better match the needs depending on where our internal teams are focusing on innovation and the stage of innovation they're in and try to make those matches there. So we continuously um, evaluate and look for new external partners and then look for opportunities internally to match the project teams with those partners and then do some small pilots with them to see how it works. And we build that data set and we look for where might they be able to be helpful in the future. In terms of place, where do you look? And I mean, we're, we're in the US, so everyone for innovation, and at least disruptive or radical innovation, looks towards the Silicon Valley and yeah. all the magic around there. Where do you look like? What geographically, but also in terms of technology? Well, we're a global company, and our, our open innovation team is actually organized globally. So we have three kind of global hubs, one in North America, another in Europe, and then we have one in Asia. And we're a small team of about 20 people, but um, we do kind of cover the globe. And we meet virtually, obviously, since we're global, um, on a regular basis. And we kind of share um, what some of the emerging needs are, either in the different regions or in the different organizations that we work with. And we talk a lot with our partners globally about you know, where are the best places to get this done. And so we aren't just limited to the US, but we tap into the ecosystems and the other geographies as well. right? So. You know, there's hotbeds of innovation in Asia that we try to tap into with our Asian group and in Europe, and then they likewise will say, hey, 
do you know of you know groups within Silicon Valley, or is there something in the you know um, the East Coast ecosystem that we should be aware of? And so we do work globally, and we each have our own individual networks, but then collectively we come together and we make that a global network, really. It's always a challenge uh, when talking about open innovation, and then the next one is IP and yes. and how to manage that. Yeah. How do you do that? We have a several different models. I think generally it's done kind of on a case-by-case -case basis, but um, it kind of depends on who we're working with and what the objective of the work is. Sometimes IP isn't as important for us. Uh, sometimes it is, right? And so if we're working with a service provider that we're sort of contracting to do work on our behalf, um, you know, a lot of times we'll own that out that IP outright, right? If we're working with a smaller company, uh, it might be a collaborative approach where we have joint IP that's developed and we jointly share it. Uh, in some of the cases where, you know, we have interest for our specific areas, we'll own the IP for our areas of interest, for our businesses, but we allow the partner that we've worked with to leverage that IP for non-compete businesses to P&G. And oftentimes they view that as a win-win because we're getting what we need for our purposes, but it enables them to kind of expand their portfolio to work with other companies that are non-competes to us and leverage the development efforts they've put in it to work with other partners that they have. And we, we don't have an issue with that. So it, you know, it kind of depends on what the company or the academic institution, as it sometimes is, what their needs are and what their interests are and how can we divide that IP in a way that's fair and meets the needs of everyone. Especially in the world today where everything, and, and also in a lot of areas that P&G is operating in, mm -hmm. uh, in the consumer space, that really fast-paced, mm -hmm. um, and then talk about IP, and then it, how does it, what does it mean to speed? Is, you know, IP sometimes at least mm -hmm. takes a long time to settle yeah. on and negotiate about, mm -hmm. and then on the other hand, the market is moving very right. quickly. Yeah. How do you, where's the trade-off? That's a really good question, right? Because sometimes the IP is very important, particularly if it's something that we believe is going to result in a platform opportunity for us. So something that we believe can span across multiple of our businesses. We may want to be a little bit more protective about the IP and, and kind of be very clear about what the ownership rights for that is. But if it's something that's very fast paced and the risk of taking the time to have the IP all locked down outweighs the risk of you know us not getting to market first with something then then we may you know value that ip in a different kind of a way right so i think it's all about how do we best meet the business need and the business interest of png in terms of how much we want to lock down ip as we do work externally what about trust is always a, an interesting one and and it is not in conflict directly with ip and all the negotiations to put in place But what I also mean with the trust is, is kind of the, a, a good atmosphere, a good vibe between the different uh, Yeah, and I partners. think that's, that's something that we learn as we kind of vet them and develop these relationships with them. And I think that's actually part of the value of the team that I'm a part of is that it's our job to establish relationships and grow relationships with these companies. And in doing that, we, we develop a very good rapport. And over time, as we get more and more projects kind of under our belt with the different companies, we learn from each other, right? And um, you know, we provide feedback to the company about how you know, it's gone for us from our perspective. And they do it back to us as well. And so I think that that really does build a relationship over time. We establish trust. And, and I think that um, 
the time invested in building those relationships is really worthwhile and has paid off for us um, very well with some of our partners that we consider amongst our most strategic partners that we work with that are external to P&G. Mm. Now we've been mentioning universities and startups. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of what is the, the range of different partnerships or partners you engage with? Are there any more than those two? And, and which ones are the majority and which are, you know, only a few? Well, I would say for sure startups are a minority at the moment. I think we're just starting to wrap our minds around how to effectively work with startups. I think as I kind of talked with different people here um, at the conference the last couple of days, it's the same for people everywhere, right? Um, I think people recognize the startup community as a great place for kind of new and emerging ideas and technologies, but everybody struggles, particularly at large companies, to figure out how to do that effectively, right? So what's, you know, what is the startup going to see as beneficial to them? Are they going to be afraid of working with a large company? How do we share IP and development and provide resources that they need? And how do we make sure that as we work with them, we don't kind of impose everything about a big company on them that makes them unique as a small startup company, right? So I think there's a lot of challenges and we're still learning our way around that, but definitely very interested in learning how to work with startups. I think probably the um, most established and sort of oldest form of external innovation that we've done is working with academic partners and academic institutions. And so we've done a lot of, of um, that historically and we continue to do that. We develop globally strategic academic partners where we have master collaboration agreements and frameworks for working with them um, that have been well established and, and you know um, used over time. We work with you know SMEs, small medium enterprise um, kind of companies as well. So um, I would say that we really do kind of span the gamut. Government institutions um, as well, government labs. We have relationships with them. Um, even larger companies. We have, you know, a couple of examples of consortia models that we've been a part of. So we worked with um, a consortia of, of five companies in the past. I think it was Coke, Nike, um, Heinz, uh, Ford, and then P&G. We had a consortia around the plant-based PET uh, in, in that plant, uh, the Coke plant bottle. We did some, some development work with them as part of a consortia. So I think we really have had examples in our history of working with the full range of <laughs> external institutions or companies. Yeah. You know, you've been you've been mentioning it a bit about the global team, uh, but as soon as projects are kind of kicked off, and now I'm talking about your work more than maybe work in other in other parts of the regions in the world in the global world, the global team that you're working in, in and part of. Uh, where do they, those projects, where are they kind of resided uh, organizationally and then also geographically? Is it in the business units or is that a specific place for them? Um, I, they, they happen wherever the project teams are, right? So we have examples of projects with external collaborations within business units. We have them um, within our very upstream organizations as well. In my organization, my role specifically is to help make those connections and then sort of facilitate that relationship and help with any problems. I mean, problems is a strong word, right? But just to kind of help facilitate the interaction and manage the relationship along the way. Um, so it can be anywhere from something logistical like getting agreements put in place to you know thinking helping the teams think strategically about how they can leverage the different partnerships or what they can do with the results. How do we take next steps now that we've done this phase of work? What's the next phase look like and who might be the right partner to work with? And that can happen at any point within our R&D organization. 
how are those projects typically funded or how is you know the resource allocation how is this organized yeah that um, the funding generally comes from the sponsoring organization right um, we have some kind of discretionary corporate funds that if you have a really good idea but there's no business unit that will sponsor it you might be able to get some money that way um, but largely the organizations for whom the who is leading the partnering they're the ones that provide the budget to do that work right so Project teams all have budgets, and you know they can decide how they want to use their resources, either internally or to help, you know get help externally, and then the funding can be used for that. How are the ideas that maybe not fit into a business unit or whatever? Where do they come from, and and how uh, you know how's the selection selection process among? Well, and I think. Most of the ideas that are sort of outside of business units would fall within what we would call those transformative platform technology groups. So sometimes, and it's a bit the job and the charter of that organization to look forward to what um, you know the needs in the next 10, 15 years might be versus the three to five year horizon that the business units tend to focus on. And so um, even if there isn't an obvious initial business connection, if we feel that there's a strong promise for a technology to impact our businesses, then those organizations will fund that work. I mean, that's always difficult to put KPIs on, on the work what, that you are doing, but how do you kind of measure if the, the work of that open innovation has an impact, mm -hmm. uh, either with KPIs or other means of measuring the, the value of it? Yeah, I mean, I think anything that helps to progress a project and move it from one stage to the next I think we view that as, as success, right? Obviously, um, you know, if you can document that you've done something and brought it in from ex externally and developed it internally and then moved it all the way to having some role in, in the product stage, then I think that's kind of the ultimate success, right? But I think um, success can also be measured in, you know, has this interaction brought about a new way of thinking or um, helped you develop a new business model or a new approach? I think those are kind of less tangible but still valuable ways of measuring whether you know reaching out externally has had some value overall for for your project or for you know your development how are the teams i mean um, you've, you've you're more or less the con connection you do the connection work more or less uh, between the the partners and then also the teams um, but how are the then eventually how are the teams uh, assembled uh, around the specific, are they already set or are they kind of re reassembled as soon as that connection is made? I think it's probably a little bit of both, but more there are existing project teams that will have a need that we know an external partner could be helpful with. And so, um, you know, we leverage those existing project teams then to work with that partner. Sometimes what happens is, you know, a project happens in stages and ideally it progresses, right? And so you might start with one team, let's say you're developing a new technology and it's more in the upstream platform group that you do an initial phase of the project work with. And then once you demonstrate success coming out of that first stage, you may bring in a partner from the business unit to work with that person then and they find either a continuation of that program with the partner you were working with or another partner, right, if that better fits what the innovation need is, and then they'll collaborate with the business unit together on that. So you're bringing, you're kind of widening your circle of your team and then, you know, it just kind of goes down the line from there. So it, it often starts with um, 
a defined project team, but that team can morph over time depending on how the project progresses. Where does the work happen? Is it, you know, if taken a university, mm -hmm. is that P&G people also working in the university and in their labs or whatever it is? I mean, it is really dependent on what kind of project it is. Mm -hmm. or, and the other way around, are university professors and PhD students maybe, are they working in P&G labs or in facilities? Yeah, I think um, a little bit less of the kind of co-location, either with external companies coming into P&G or P&G going into the external companies, but that happens. We certainly have models where that has been the case. Um, a lot of times they are collaborative teams, and so the work is led primarily at the external institution, and they interface on a regular basis with P&G project team members. Occasionally they'll have collaborative development sessions or things like that, and sometimes, yes, we do travel to the facilities and do some work in collaboration together. So it's not that it never happens. Um, but I think having people on site, either you know them coming to us or us going to them, that's a little less rare. But I think I'd really like to see more of that happening in the future because I think it's really that co-located collaboration that can really help accelerate things a lot. What are some of the challenges? I mean, uh, facilitating this and you know, or the the, the biggest challenges and maybe recurrent cha challenges uh, that you see in your daily work in making that mediation uh, between the partners and then probably a lot of times diverging interests at least in the beginning in the early stages yeah I mean I think in the early stages it's usually um, you know it's 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 fairly easy and a little bit more straightforward because usually the external partner is kind of going off based on a needs brief or a problem statement that we've provided to them and they come back with ideas and you know Generally, the teams are happy with the work. If not, they've had some conversations and they sort of pivot and you know develop in, in a different direction. But you know, at the end of the initial phase of the project, I think uh, you know um, even when the project teams are very excited about the outcome, sometimes it's hard for us to then take that work and either move it back internally or continue the development to another phase. Um, on a time frame that makes everybody happy. I think our external partners also get excited sometimes about the work they do and then they get frustrated when we've completed a certain phase of the project and they even have a vision about where it might be able to go next and then we sit on it for a long time. Um, and that unfortunately happens because we don't always have the capacity to move things forward in the way that we'd like to or other things get prioritized and so I think Probably the toughest part is managing the expectations from the partner about where that work will go once a certain phase of that project is finished and either getting approval to move to a second phase or taking it internally and developing it further. Sometimes that doesn't happen on a time frame that makes everybody happy. <laughs> so, What do you think, uh, what capabilities do you need in that work? Especially like, I mean, my first guess is communication is really important, of course. But what other uh, capabilities do you need in making that facilitation, mediation between those different parties work, and also in searching and scouting, and then making it fit, and, and, and yeah. all of that? Well, I think in our organization, if you look at the composition of people that are working there, um, they have had a number of years of experience with P&G. I think it's really important. You can't come in one to two years in the company and kind of effectively do that role without having the experience of having worked in multiple categories or functions. So um, I've worked across maybe 
four different categories, maybe even five, I don't know, and then maybe you know two or three different functions within, organiza- uh, within our R&D organization. And so I think it's very helpful to have a background of working within those organizations because you know really what the challenges and the needs are. You also have a pretty big network of people that you've built over, you know, in my case, 20 years. So I already kind of have some idea of who's doing what where that I can make the internal connections for. Um, and have an understanding of what some of the challenges in the different functions and in the different categories is as well. So that helps a lot. Amy, thank you very much for that uh, interesting and uh, pleasant conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can find our show in most podcast apps. Subscribe for free to get the latest episodes. The video and the transcript of this podcast and all of our other exclusive interviews can be accessed via innovationroundtable.online. The Innovation Roundtable online network is your portal to a wide variety of exclusive content, including video presentations, interviews, insights reports, and articles. Not only that, innovationroundtable.online is also a place where you can connect with thousands of other corporate innovators, share experiences, request collaborations, and gain inspiration from your peers. Our network is exclusively for innovation, HR, and marketing practitioners in large firms. So visit innovationroundtable.online to discover more and request your 15-day free trial account.